I'm Sherry Sylvester, and this is Ninth in Congress. Today I'm going to talk with Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, author of Take Two Aspirin and Call Me By My Pronouns, Why Turning Doctors into Social Justice Warriors is Destroying American Medicine. Dr. Goldfarb is a former associate dean of the University of Pennsylvania Perelman School of Medicine and has been the Paul Revere on how medical schools have been infiltrated by woke policies all across America, including here in Texas. In 2021, he founded Do No Harm to stop the radically divisive and discriminatory political ideologies that are eliminating, among other things, testing and training standards in medical institutions, all in the name of social justice. Do No Harm has filed over 70 complaints with the U.S. Office of Civil Rights charging violations of Title VI and Title IX, including one stating that the University of Texas at San Antonio's Long School of Medicine's Diversity in Medicine Visiting Elective Scholars Program barred whites and Asians from applying. In January, Do No Harm released a report entitled the progressive takeover of Texas medical education, and I'm very anxious to talk with him about it. Dr. Goldfarb, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Tell us a little bit about your story. We, uh, we are anti-DEI here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and we know that the Academy has been leaning left for decades. So, so what's your story? What's been your experience? Well, I came to a medical education about, oh, it's it's almost 20 years ago now, in a formal post, as, as you mentioned, Associate Dean for Curriculum in the medical school. And at that, up until that point, I had been a medical administrator, I had been a, a, a clinician, I had been a, uh, a researcher, and uh, I was used to medicine the way I think most people envision it, where doctors try to do the best for their patients unrelated to any kind of racial issues at all. When I got to, to Penn's, uh, the in the dean's office and running the curriculum, I thought we did quite well for many years. But then a new, a new uh, vice dean for education, who was who was my direct boss, uh, the woman I had worked with for many years in that role, we had we had been very uh, collegial and and worked together, and and we felt we had a very good curriculum. We were the number three or number two ranked medical school when, when rankings were still in existence. And um, but the new this new person had a couple of characteristics that I think bode for problems. One is she had a master's in education degree and she had come through a, a very woke <laughs> uh, set of uh, ideas and trainings that come along with going to education schools these days. And she also had an attitude that um, we had, in, in, in words that I, I think I've made not famous, but at least I've, I've repeated many times, she said to me, you know, we have too much science in the curriculum. We need to teach the students more about social issues and more about advocacy. And that's really the, the way we need to change the curriculum. So with that sort of attitude versus my attitude that I mentioned before, we didn't really get along terribly well. And um, eventually I was moved out of this position. It was time for me to retire anyway. I'd been at Penn for over almost 50 years at that point. And so at that at that time, um, you know, I just became so frustrated with the direction that I saw it was going. I started to become aware 
of what the American Medical Association was pushing in their educational activities and other uh, national organizations uh, like the Beyond Flexner Alliance, which is another left sort of uh, group of people who funded medical education initiatives, that they were really pushing this idea that medical students ought to function almost as social workers and that physicians should be much, much more involved, mostly as advocates for social issues uh, rather than, you know, focusing on hardcore science and hardcore uh, clinical uh, treatments and so on. And 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 that led me to uh, notice in the Wall Street Journal a story that started all this. It was, the story was that um, 40 medical schools had developed courses in climate change in their curricula. And I thought that this was ridiculous. There was no expertise about this, and it was all going to be, you know, political issues and and uh, environmental advocacy. And it really had nothing to do with what physicians needed to know or or, or do. And um, so I wrote a letter to the Wall Street Journal about this, and they wrote back. They didn't. They weren't aware of this article. I, I made them aware it was in the Wall Street Journal. They said, "Why don't you write an op-ed?" And I wrote the op-ed. You mentioned the title before take two aspirins and call me by my pronouns. And all hell broke loose when I did that. Um, there was such an uproar in, in medical education and amongst medical students and young physicians mostly that the Wall Street Journal had to write an editorial a couple of days later decrying how the reaction to my article, which was simply, and my article simply said, we should stop spending so much time. And I knew there were plans to spend much more time on these social issues rather than hardcore science, and that that's what I was complaining about. My school denounced me, and ultimately I, I retired, and I was viewed with great disdain by many of my colleagues, and some, some of whom I really helped in their careers. That was quite disappointing. So then I, I decided I'm going to write a book. I wrote the book that you mentioned, just to expand on my ideas, which, you know, very much a... a, a a central center-right sort of conservative viewpoint is the one that I, I have in my worldview. And I just pointed out how I was really worried about the direction that medical education was going. Um, at that point, um, I got into uh, some further trouble because I, I made some other comments on Twitter. Uh, ultimately, I got canceled from and the school denounced me even further. Uh, called me sort of a racist, and and it real I realized I needed to to do more than just speak out. A lot of people were speaking out at this point, so I decided to start do no harm. And our organization, as you mentioned, is about a year and a half old now, and uh, we've been I, I think more successful than I expected. I think we sort of touched the nerve that was going on around the the country in medical education and in medical care in general. Now we have over five thousand members. And uh, as you mentioned, we've um, we've been quite active in, in helping create some legislation and helping legislators around the country with legislation. We've we've been active in two areas. One has been in the, the so-called DEI space, if you will, where we've pushed back against required um, kinds of implicit bias training and needing to for faculty members to declare themselves completely ad adherent to all the DEI principles um, if they want to get promoted, uh, for people being uh, prohibited from speaking out about this, even being fired if they are unwilling to take implicit bias training, uh, and even in 
California and other and some other states a requirement to get your license renewed. You'd have to uh, adopt this, which really is a political ideology. Uh, the other the other area that we've been interested in has been in um, so-called uh, gender affirming care and this issue of trying to uh, convert children. We 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 don't care about adults at all. Adults can do what they want. It's a free country, but children should not go through this pathway. Uh, certainly not the way it's going on in the United States. And and I must say that just for your audience, I, I think there's a real commonality between these two issues. And the, and the common thread is that in each case, there's a view that patients need to be viewed as members of a group, whether the patients are black patients or other minority individuals, or these children that are usually in great mental distress and, have, and are seeking this gender transition. In each case, they're viewed as members of a group and need to be treated at the way the group is treated, as opposed to as individuals who need to be treated as individuals and identify their individual problems. Yeah. And um, the children are called trans kids. As soon as they, they um, talk about any kind of a desire to change their gender or have concerns about their gender, they're immediately put in this category. And we're supposed to deal with black patients as if they're being oppressed. You know, the idea of critical race theory come to, to medicine as if they're being oppressed by physicians and by the healthcare system and that we need to create mechanisms and to create health equity that, to create the same outcomes for black patients as white patients. There are healthcare dis, uh, disparities, but they're not due to bias on the part of physicians. So in each case, people are being treated as members of a group, and our organization is devoted to treating them as individuals. Well, let, let, let's unpack that a little bit. I certainly want to talk to you about gender modification. Another piece of legislation we passed in Texas this year, and we passed it by targeting doctors in terms of mm -hmm. children, and we felt that, that was the best way to go. But it, going back to this, you talked about being ostracized. And in one of my colleagues here, uh, senior higher education fellow, Dr. Andrew Gillen, has written about the academic drift to the left, which has been going on for a long time. And he talks about, you know, just using markers like Republican and Democrat. It's been on campus since the 70s and 80s. It's been about five to one, you know, Democrat to Republican. Uh, and uh, in economics, in science, uh, engineering. In sociology, it's like 44 to 1. But mm -hmm. for a long time, it didn't matter uh, that there was such a, an imbalance in the sciences because there was a tolerance and you were teaching science. And so there, there was not a challenge to uh, to the science, as, as you said, you know, the idea that, that you weren't teaching, you were teaching too much science in medical school is is mind boggling. And so there, mm -hmm. there, there was this shift. And as you say, the education schools and the so sociology agenda had no tolerance. I mean, universities used to have a tolerance, even though they've always been left, a tolerance for right thinking. And, and now there isn't a tolerance. Is that kind of what you experienced? Yes, it, it was even more vituperative though, I must say. You know, let me tell you the specific 
event that led my, uh, the chairman of the Department of Medicine. I used to be the chairman of the Department of Medicine, but the current chairman of the Department of Medicine at Penn to denounce me. So what happened was I, I read an article that just I, I thought was mind-boggling. And the article um, simply said that uh, it, it evaluated and I don't know why they did this study. It was published in Academic Medicine, which is the official journal of the Association of American Medical Colleges. And the study was at three medical schools at uh, at Harvard, at University of Virginia, and at Emory, three very fine medical institutions. And it assessed how the faculty viewed minority residents. These are now postgraduates from medical school, the mm -hmm. trainees in the medical in the hospitals, how the faculty viewed them over several years. And they gathered up all the data that the faculty mentioned about their these students, and they came to the, and they noted that in each category that the faculty assessed the, the residents, professionalism, readiness for practice, medical knowledge, um, in each case, the minority residents fared less well than the non-minority residents, whites and Asians. And the conclusion that they offered, which I think echoes this idea that you've put forth about the fact that this is so left, is that there, there were three reasons that were possible for the, this, the ex explaining these results. One was that the, the faculty were racist. Number two was that the institution was not welcoming of the students. And number three was the assessment system somehow was racist. So this this just highlights the idea that they see the world through critical race theory, that the only way that that whites or, or others interact with minority people is through an oppressor oppressed dyad. And that's what they saw in this particular instance. Well, I tweeted out, I said, I, I tweeted out the results and I said, you know, there's another possibility. Maybe the residents weren't so good. And this this just led to me being labeled a racist, me being removed from uh, the website at the University of Pennsylvania. <laughs> they took my name off. I mean, I'm an emeritus professor. Uh, they took my name out of the history of the kidney division. I had been the co-director of the kidney division previously. They took my name out of that history. Um, and, uh, and I got fired from Up to Date, which is the largest medical reference that's used in the world. I was one of the editors of the kidney portion, and I was fired from that. And they told me it was because I was hurting their brand. They were getting uh, complaints. So I think this reflects what's going on in, in academic medicine in general. It's it, it, critical race theory is the sort of the zeitgeist of the, these institutions. And, and, you know, critical race theory is a theory. It is not a reality. It is some people, some scholars, some intellectuals notion of this is the way that races and peoples interact. They interact through this oppressor oppressed notion. I don't think that's the way the vast majority of us interact with anyone. We interact with human beings. Some of them are, are helping us. Some of them are hurting us. Some of them we have conflict with. Some of them we're we're very close with and love dearly. And you know, and they don't see it that way. They see this this model, and academic medicine has adopted this. Now, I don't know that they totally believe it, but I think it's been the easiest way for them to organize themselves. Because if not, they would have a lot of young people who have totally adopted this idea. They would have a lot of young people, you know, sitting in in the dean's office and complaining, and they would have Twitter to deal with, as I had to deal with when my first article came out. 
And it's just easier to go along and pay. And I think paying lip service in many cases to this and and the mechanism that they pay this lip service is to hire a bunch of people in the DEI office, spend a lot of money on sending people to courses, uh, training about implicit bias and so on. And I, I find this outrageous simply because if the issue is to improve the health outcomes of minority communities, none of this is going to make one whit of difference in that. It's going to waste a lot of money. It's going to alienate people even more. And it even has more potentially meretricious outcomes that we can talk about. Even if you uh, acknowledge the problem, when I, we were, when I testified for the DEI bill, uh, the bill to end DEI in Texas. You know, I testified. Dr. Ben Carson came down to Texas and testified in support of the bill. Some other people, and but you know, 300 people crossed the street from the University of Texas to testify in support, including a number of DEI officers. None of them said these programs are improving outcomes for African American mm -hmm. students. Hispanic students, women students, because the data shows that that's a huge challenge. You know, yes. minority recruitment is not up. It's stagnant. Outcomes are stagnant. Clearly, whatever we're doing is, is not, not working. So this is, a, I mean, the argument that I tried to make with, with uh, the legislators that I think was important is, you know, forget the politics. This is a, an idea that does not work. If, if, right. if we want, we, and we do, we want every kid in Texas to have access to the best higher education that they can get, and probably the answer to that is to improve their K-12 education, starting with that. But I wanted to ask you about something in your report. You found that uh, at the UT Austin School of Medicine, the uh, MCAT score for admitting an African-American student was 75 percent, a 75 percent off score for an admitted black student, well below the 25 percent MCAT score for an, a white or Asian student. What does that mean in a classroom? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. What does it mean? And that's one of the things that's been thrown out there that standardized tests do not really predict anything. Standardized tests are useless. It all reflects previous privilege that individuals have. I mean, that's that's been the arguments. Those are the arguments, by the way, that the Supreme Court sort of rejected in all this. But in their uh, most recent ru ruling about students for fair admissions. Um, here's what it means. It, it, in medicine, there's very good data to show that the um, scores on the MCATs predict performance in medical school. And there's very good data that performance in medical school predicts performance as a resident, as a trainee, where you actually has a, have a license to practice under some supervision. Um, so there's absolutely no question that, and, and the reason that it does predict is, is I think the following, is that medicine in particular uh, is a field that very much mimics the kind of thinking that has to go on in standardized tests. And I, I used to tell the students when they tra transferred from the first year and a half of medical school, which was all classroom work to the clinic, I used to say, you know, up until now, we've been testing you with multiple choice questions. 
And a, a typical multiple choice question has a stem, a little story, and then it asks a number of questions. About, it asks a question about that story, and you, you're given four or five answers, and you have to pick the right one. Uh, it might be a physical finding, it might, and, and so on, and then it might be, what's the significance of this? And there you get five possibilities. I tell them, once you go into the clinic, you are creating a multiple choice question about each patient. The patient is coming in and you are generating this stem, this short history, this short little blurb about what the key issue is for this patient. Then you're thinking of the possibilities that might explain these symptoms or this reaction to a medication or what have you, and you're picking the right one. So this kind of thinking, dealing with a lot of information quickly because the patient is in front of you, coming up with the right answer quickly, it's part of the, the physician-patient interaction. We just don't have all day to, to come up with these proper things. We don't have time to sit there and, and shuttle through the computer to find an answer. Um, this is the way you need to be able to think. And if you can't think about, uh, on an exam this way, you're going to have trouble thinking in the real world this way. And in fact, that's what happens. They do have trouble. So those those kinds of scores that you mentioned represent the fact that Students are being ad admitted to medical school because of their skin color when there are other students who have a much better academic performance up until that point are not being admitted. Now, you know, in, in college, you could make the argument that, well, if they don't go to Harvard, they can go to Yale. If they don't go to Yale, they can go to University of Texas or, they, or vice versa. There are a lot of colleges. There are lots of pathways to get into higher into higher education. Medical school, it isn't the same. There are very few physicians really available. There are about 40,000 or so applicants every year and 22,000 students are accepted. So if someone gets into medical school, someone else doesn't. So this is a zero sum game. And it, it really means that we are restricting uh, certain individuals from having the opportunity to be physicians. And these are individuals who may have performed much better than those who are being admitted. And the ones who are being admitted are being admitted in the name of diversity. That's the, that, that's the been the phrase that in the DEI world. And in this idea that diversity is gonna to lead to better health outcomes, I think is something I'd, I'd love to talk with you about because I, I have many thoughts about this and some data to, to speak to it. Yeah, but in I, fact, I well, was gonna say, go ahead. You know, the bottom line is that diversity does not lead to better health outcomes and, and therefore, the problem in, in, in medicine, in medical school, and medical education in general is that unlike, again, unlike colleges and other fields, in other fields, it's the school and the student, and that interaction has to go on. In medicine, it's the school, it's the student, and there's a third person in the room, and that's the patient. And in this urge to have more and more minority students into medical school, uh, the benefits to the patient are being put aside for the benefits for the student. And I, I think most of us would agree that we really think in this one particular field, and there are other critical fields, airline pilots and so on, that do you know life important kinds of work that they really, you have to have the best and the brightest perform and you have to try to identify those people as best you can. And it, it also seems to me that the criminal piece is that it's a disservice to those students. We know that some in, in our history, some of our greatest medical minds have been African-American physicians. We know that the, this is a failure, at least. Of course, we're, we're very big on uh, school choice and educational freedom here uh, at the Texas Public Policy Institute. And we know that if we were preparing 
all students, including minority students, that those numbers would rise. We, wouldn't, we could keep the standards that we have. It's a real disservice to say you can't get in unless we lower the bar. And, yes. uh, no, exactly. And, and, you know, there's a higher dropout rate by black students compared to white students. There's a higher uh, uh, incidence of those of minority students being fired from residency programs. Again, this is all attributed to racism. It's not. It's, it's about their performance. And many of them are being put in positions that it really is unfair to them. They aren't able to, to perform the way that they need to in order to, to move ahead. And, you know, one of the counter arguments has been, well, the vast majority pass the, the licensure exams. But people need to understand the licensure exam is a minimal competency exam. It's not an exam to test whether someone is excellent. It's a test to determine whether someone is minimally competent. And we need to do better than minimally competent. Board exams tend to test whether someone is excellent or not, or at least better, but licensure exams should not be the standard for saying, well, we have a, a capable medical force. We have a barely competent set of individuals in that medical force, and that barely competent sometimes becomes incompetent. It's like, yeah, Saturday Night Live. I don't want a doctor who is minimally competent <laughs> coming in, de dealing with my issues. Let's talk about, you know, there's always kind of, a, and I want to talk to you about uh, gender-affirming care, but before we leave this, uh, can we talk about this whole notion of health equity? Because I find mm. that just mind-boggling, the idea that these non-biological determinants of poor health. And we know that there's a grain of salt in that. We know that stress affects your health. We know that uh, 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 economics, poverty, stigma, racism, all those things affect your health. Uh, but I'm not sure how a doctor intervenes on those issues. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, absolutely. It's a good point. I, I actually, I just wrote a, a, a short essay about this because there was an article in the New England Journal about how physicians should become much more uh, uh, knowledgeable about the so-called social determinants of health, and to the point where they would be able to intervene in social issues that patients have, like housing issues and poverty and you know, food deserts and all this. And one of my themes, which I wrote about in my book and which I've stressed and now I wrote in this particular essay is, what are you talking about? What what are physicians supposed to do here? And they, they had some example of a physician writing to the government to get somebody some housing or something. But there were social workers who spent two years in school learning how to handle these issues. And, and this particular article, you know, sort of threw that away saying, well, yeah, they could send him to a social worker. It's more important that the physician be involved in this, which is absurd. They don't have the time, they don't have the knowledge, and they don't have the capability to, to do anything about these social issues. So, and I must, I must, a little a bit of language issue that I have. So they're called social determinants of health, as if they determine health. They are associated with poor health outcomes. The biologic basis in which they are associated with poor health outcomes is really quite unclear. But unless you're willing to say that what they represent is cultural issues and behavioral issues that influence patients' health. So for example, if you live in a really poor neighborhood 
that doesn't have access to health care and you have a bad, bad health outcome, it's not because you didn't, the neighborhood is poor. It's because you didn't get access to health care. You didn't get the health care that you needed when you needed it. So this is so these social determinants of health really should be entitled social factors that influence health. But it's much. But once you say social determinants of health, people say, well, if it's a determinant, it must be determining health. There's no biologic link here. Now you mentioned stress, but who isn't under stress? <laughs> you know, yeah. who I mean, the stockbroker that that has a big income and his clients are calling him up because the stock market is going down is under a lot of stress. The, the body doesn't know one stress from another. So it can't be that. It can't be stress does have important effects, but you know, again, it can't be stress only involves poor people or stress only involves black people or stress only involves other minority people. So we need to, to see this differently. I think there's a link between living in, in these neighborhoods and these communities and poor health outcomes. We need to get at what the basis for that is. Some of it is cultural, some of it is genetic also. We have to understand that minority communities have come to the United States from certain geographic region, regions. Genetics is determined by geographic origins. It's, it's, not, it's nothing else. If you, For example, if you come from West Africa, you are much more likely to have a gene that protects you against African sleeping sickness. But when you come to the United States and have that gene, and that gene is transmitted through generation after generation, that gene makes you more susceptible to kidney disease. If you take that gene and transplant it into experimental animals, they develop kidney disease. And that gene is much more prevalent in African-Americans who happen to be enslaved from West Africa, came to the United States, and they represent a large fraction of the African-American population. This is not racism. This is genetic reality. And if we want to understand why there's a high incidence of kidney disease in the black population, that's one of the things we have to accept. This is not because white doctors are not treating them properly. This is because they're at much more risk of kidney disease. And unless we understand that and deal with the reality of it and instead refuse to consider it because it's considered racist, we're not going to be able to help these people, which is really the bottom line here. As you said, we need to improve outcomes. We need to improve their health. And we need to un understand how we can do that and not just assume that critical race theory underlies the reason they have health disparities. Yeah, it's uh, genetics to me seems to be the, the, new th the new thing that we have to crack. Uh, my sister has a terminal genetic disease. I don't have that. That's a, a mystery. And then the, all the stuff that we're learning about people that survived, descendants of the people that survived the Black Death in Europe. I mean, we're just beginning to find yeah. out how all of this sorts out and, and uh, to, to try to put the uh, Democrat Party's talking points on this as somehow a medical issue just seems uh, really, really wacky to me. Uh, so I, I really like the way that you drew the idea of gender-affirming care, which is a foul term. It doesn't mm -hmm. affirm anything. Uh, but in, in talking about uh, taking the focus away from the individual and putting it on a group. But how do you see that developing? I, the polling is different uh, yes. uh, on, on these issues. You know, 60, 70 percent of the public, they're not buying this. The, they, 50, 60, 70 percent of the public, 80 percent of the public supports gay marriage. But they also believe that, that you are the sex you were born. 
at and that we shouldn't be performing unnecessary and risky surgeries and uh, prescribing dangerous, you know, dangerous puberty blockers and other medications. How do you see this going? Is this something that we're going to be able to really uh, stop? Because uh, certainly it's stopping in Europe. They're, they've really got the yes, message well, over there. And that, that's the, the key point. That if, if, I, if there's one one lever that we have and that we've tried to use and we've been writing in the wall street journal and, and other places to try to uh, push this issue of the fact that there are four, four european countries now sweden norway finland and the united kingdom that have dramatically curtailed the the, the um, transition of children uh, into uh, into uh, different genders by giving them medications giving them these puberty blockers or uh, cross-sex hormones, and and certainly uh, avoiding the surgical procedures. It's a, I don't say it isn't a very complicated issue. There are probably individuals out there, even children, that have true developmental abnormalities in their perception of themselves, their gender, and that this gender transition actually might be the right thing for them. And this is not, this is not orthodoxy amongst people that are opposed to gender-affirming care, but this, this is a very rare condition. It's been known for many years. And what we knew about it for many years is that the vast majority of those children that start to develop these, these feelings as very small children, if left alone, they go through puberty and then they live their normal lives as whatever you know gender they were born into. And they may be gay, they may be bisexual, they may be heterosexual, but they're not, they don't have their bodies destroyed by medications. But what's happened in the last few years is a population, mostly of young women, it used to be mostly boys who underwent these this pathway, uh, but a population of young girls through the so-called uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria, where suddenly they enter into early stages of puberty and they decide that they need to change their gender. And this has been a catastrophic activity. And, and the, the data on this in the United States has really shown that these children are not benefited by these treatments. And we know that these treatments have terrible side effects. So when I say that the Europeans have curtailed it, they've looked at the literature, they've performed systematic reviews, which are very rigorous, careful reviews of literature, and they've decided we needed to curtail this. They might have some children that are going through these pathways through in, in research protocols. They may have a few children that are going through it because of their their particular psychological problems. But in the United States, the vast majority, the vast, vast majority of these young girls that are being put through this are being harmed and that this just needs to stop in this country. It needs to stop. And the only way it's going to stop, I'm afraid, is either the bodies pile up. And what I mean by that is we'll see more and more children detransitioning, suing their, their physicians and the health systems that put them through either surgical procedures or medications. Um, we'll see more suicides because the suicide rate is, is still high in these kids who are getting gender transition. Their parents are told, if you don't do this, your kid is going to kill themselves. But in the studies, we see kids kill themselves who are being put through the gender transition. In a recent study in the New England Journal of 300 people who started the study, two of them committed suicide while they were in the study. Um, so I'm afraid either the legislative 
agenda is going to be continue to be pushed around the country. And that's that's been unfortunately the focus we've had to take because the medical establishment in the United States, unlike the Europeans, has not looked at their own data and said, you know, we're doing the wrong thing here. We need to cut this back dramatically. They haven't done that. They've been affirming what they've been doing, even in the face of, of, a, of a body of literature now that doesn't support it at all. And we have some hope in that the pediatric, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics just declared that they would do a systematic review of the literature now, even though they came out and said, we're still, we still think this is a great thing and kids should be able to do this and, and find their own way and all this nonsense. It's as if a child comes in and says, I have diabetes. And we say, yes, you're right. You have diabetes. We're going to give you insulin. We're not going to do any testing because you know you have diabetes. It's the same. These kids are coming in and saying, I, I want to change my gender. And we're saying, you're right. Let's start changing your gender without even assessing why in the world you would come up with this uh, idea in the first place. And we know that most of these kids who, who present this way, in fact, have severe psychological difficulties and need psychotherapy. They don't need surgery and they don't need, they don't need hormones. They need psychotherapy. That's what they need. Yeah, it's it's, it's wacky. Did, I, I, it's hard for me to figure out how, I mean, you're a doctor, you're a scientist. The, the science seems very clear on this. I mean, sex is binary. I, I don't understand what rationale, unless you just get a brochure from uh, the LGBTQIA group and you decide to embrace it and not ask any questions, uh, which doesn't seem very well, scientific to me. Yeah. Why are they doing it? it? It's a good question. I think one thing is uh, there's an awful lot of, of trendy medicine that occurs. People get an idea that something is good. They pursue it. They read about it in the literature. They say, boy, that's a great idea. I'd love to do something like that. And, and this has happened over and over again in the years. You know, famously, uh, a Nobel Prize was given back in the 1920s for lobotomies, which were very popular because they were felt to, to improve um, psychological problems, particularly in people who were schizophrenic, I think more than, than anyone else at that time. Famously, uh, Jack Kennedy's sister underwent a lobotomy. Um, and of course, that turned out to be a catastrophe for everyone involved and and no longer is, of course, even considered. Um, and, and there's a lot of a lot of us who are involved in this field and, and fighting back against it think we're going to see the same sort of thing in in this field. But at the time, people are swept up in this idea. And unfortunately, there's a lot of money to be made in this activity. The drugs are very expensive. The uh, prebody blockers are inserted surgically into these children, so they're they're sort of depot um, puberty blockers, and they there's there's a five hundred dollar or so charge to a thousand dollars each time one of these is inserted. There the medications are expensive; insurance may pay for it. The surgeries that are being conducted are very expensive, um, and um, you know, and physicians are have generated practices based on this. And um, and so they may have, you know, a thousand patients in their practice who are going through these procedures and this represents their clinical activity. So unfortunately, there's an economic impulse here. I think many of them think it's the right thing to do, but I don't think they've looked at the at the literature. They've just listened to advocates and decided that they're going to pursue it. And, you know, doctors are famous for being tremendous um, users of alternative medicines. When they, when people have conducted studies, turns out physicians are big users of alternative medicines, which alternative medicines mean medicines that no one's proven they really work. They might work, they might not, nobody really knows. 
factors. You mean personally? The, and don't act in a very scientific way when they think about think about medicine and that's and i think this is a, a good example of it because they are not examining the science they're not looking at the literature and if they do look at the literature they'll see just as the european uh, health systems have seen that this is not something that should be pursued any further before we go i want to ask you about uh you talked about the and i've talked about the legislative efforts that we've made here and that are going on in other states tell me about your strategy in filing complaints to the office of civil rights and and why you've gone that way and whether or not you believe that that's a su successful path right yeah um well you know there are two ways to to sort of go in the legal arena we've we have a bunch of lawsuits we've had at least one that's been completely successful we sued the state of arkansas that the Arkansas Medical Board had a scholarship that precluded whites and Asians from participating in it, and they took that down and changed it after we sued them. Uh, we sued Pfizer, which had a program, again, whites and Asians need not apply, a very rich program that was taking students, minority students in and giving them basically careers at Pfizer if they joined this program. That's very expensive. It's a long process. Um, but it, it, you know, it ultimately can be successful. The California lawsuit we've just launched is against forcing doctors to take implicit bias training. So that's one path to take. The, the thing about the Office of Civil Rights is that you don't need to have standing. You don't need to be personally injured the way you do in lawsuits to, to file a complaint. Um, you can simply write a letter to the Office of Civil Rights and say, here's a program we think is uh, illegal, will you please look into it? And they've been terrific, actually, surprisingly terrific at looking into this, these programs. And we've been quite successful. I, our, our success rate, I don't know, it's probably something on the 20 or 30% rate at this point of uh, schools taking down these kinds of programs. Now, the one you mentioned before at the University of Texas at Austin, this visiting scholar program is very typical. So what's behind that? What's behind those scholarships is uh, these institutions, you know, are closely aligned with hospitals. Uh, and the hospital, just like the medical schools, are looking for diversity. And I, and I do hope we get a chance to talk about diversity issues and, and its impact there. Um, but these hospitals are also looking for diversity in their residency programs. And what they try to do is to bring minority students from other institutions to come and spend a month at the institution that's hoping to recruit them so that they'll see how nice it is. They give them, they show them where they might live. They show them how pleasant life is in Austin in this particular case. And um, and in order to get these students to come and spend time at the institution, they've put out these scholarships and say, you come, we'll give you a stipend and, and so on, and we'll allow you to spend some time here. Um, typically, it says whites and Asians should not apply to these programs. There's, it's Blacks and, and Hispanics and Pacific Islanders and so on that are included. Um, so that's what they're trying to accomplish with these programs. And the Office of Civil Rights will write to the school. And I, I remember one conversation we had with the University of Florida where we spoke with the, the head lawyer of the university who said, you know, they, they put these programs in. They don't even ask us whether they're legal or not. They're not legal. She acknowledged that. And they took the program down because they are illegal. And there are titles within the uh, Civil Rights Act. And I'm no lawyer or legislator, but say you cannot discriminate based on race. And if you accept any federal monies at all, and almost all these institutions do, 
you're not allowed to discriminate based on race. And that's exactly what, what they were doing. So it's very, it's been quite successful at getting them to change these programs. Now, we can't stop them from trying to work their way around it, but we keep we try to try to keep track as much as we can, just as the government is going to be, the, or the, the hopefully the government, but, but groups like ours will be keeping track of medical school admissions to see if the, the end of affirmative action leads to a much more rational and logical and 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 um, you know free democratic approach to medical school admissions rather than what's been going on for the last few years. Yeah, well, in in your uh, in talking about diversity issues and and your kind of final message to us in Texas, you know, we're a majority minority state. I live in San Antonio, so I've been in a majority minority city that's been you know that way since the beginning. So. So diversity is clearly something we value. It's our, it's our, it's our life. It's, it's the way that we live. And how do you think these issues are being uh, uh, perpetrated or playing out with the term yeah. diversity? Well, I think, you know, to me, the ideal of diversity is that we don't even, we don't even appreciate, we don't even realize it's there, but it's there because everybody has the same opportunity mm -hmm. and people achieve what they're capable of achieving. And it doesn't matter what you look like. And you're not, if, if I wouldn't care if the entire medical school class at Penn were Asian or were black, or I couldn't care what it was, as long as these were the most qualified students that, that were admitted. Um, and I must say, in, in medical school and residency, the idea that you need diversity is it can't be the same as the idea you need diversity in colleges. The idea there is that you're trying to have people learn from one another. The people who go to medical school or, and residencies are already adults. They've been through all of the, the diversity that they're going to be through. So now the question is, what's the purpose of it in, in medicine? What's the purpose of saying we have to have 13% of our class be black and we have to have 20% of our class be Hispanic. What, why is that required? What is the point of that? And the argument is that, well, your white doctors are biased against black patients. And the only way black patients are going to have optimum outcomes is if they have black doctors. So that's what's really going on in the diversity movement. And the argument in almost every time any you know, one of the experts or the officials writes about this, they write, well, it's well known that diversity improves health outcomes. Well, it's not well known. Not only <laughs> is it not well known, it's not true. There's no good evidence for that. We have a large study that our organization is going to be publishing very shortly to show that the literature doesn't support this. There's no evidence really that's valid in any way, shape or form that black patients do better with black doctors. Black patients do better with good doctors. White patients do better with good doctors. That's what they need. And whatever their skin color is, that should be the determinant uh, of their, their quality should be the determinant of whether they get to be doctors, which is a real privilege. Um, and uh, the idea that we're gonna create a, a cadre of black doctors, there's even a push to try to find black students who have been rejected from medical school to give them, who are minorities, to give them an opportunity to get into medical school in subsequent years because there'd be a special program for them. This is just wrong. I mean, those people, they may be wonderful people. They should find something else to do in life besides try to go to medical school if they really couldn't get into medical school on multiple occasions and if they aren't really qualified for it. And, um, you know, and uh, you mentioned, you know, Ben Carson. In my book, I talk about four black physicians who rose to the very highest levels of 
medical organizations. There are plenty of brilliant black doctors. This is not about intelligence. This is about whether we have a cohort of people that are ready to go to medical school and whether medical schools are trying to attract people who really aren't aren't qualified to be physicians or are rejecting people or are even more qualified to be physicians simply in the name of this magical diversity which there for which there's no evidence will improve the health of the of the black community or any other minority community well and let's look at that look at dr carson's path and the other paths of successful minority doctors and see how they got there and and we can see what the the gaps are uh i like your your closing uh people you get better outcomes when people have good doctors yeah. you know I think I think all of us in in uh, what's going on in medicine today, we're all accustomed really to having doctors of all countries, lots lots of origins, and I I don't think anyone's complaining about that. But I think you make excellent points about our medical schools, Dr. Goldfarb. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, my uh, pleasure. Thank you. Very was, good questions. Thank it was you. great to have you. Uh, you can subscribe to the Ninth in Congress podcast at Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive the Ninth in Congress newsletter, you can sign up at the TPPF website, www.texaspolicy.com slash Ninth in Congress. Mm -hmm.